If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast One, are you ready there, Sunshine? Yes, I'm rolling away. That's extraordinary that you're so prone and prepped. Just trying to get you on the move, man. Come yeah, on, let's how go. Are how are you, Head? I'm great. I'm great. How's your week been? The week's been good. I actually had a pint in a glass, which pint is a big deal. Except for the missus went down to the, the local and we sat there. What is your local? O'Dwyer's on Kilmacud Road. Good spot. It's okay. a good spot. Okay, I know it. I know it from driving that way, but I've never been inside yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's a good say, spot. Good. Well, I have been Dorky Festival. Yes. The Yin Yang. Yeah. It has been, I tell you, because obviously we're, 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 we're going live this Friday coming. And I've had the most marvellous conversations only today with Matt Damon, my new best friend. Matt Damon! Bernie Sanders, my new, well, my old mate. <laughs> Hello, David. Brian Cox. No, Bernie Sanders is David. You have got to understand. You've got to understand that the American people are suffering yeah. and we can fix it. No, Hello, but- Sean. How are the kids? Yeah. How is Sean and the kids? <laughs> anyway, all is good, but... Matt Damon, an amazing conversation with him this morning, just before the gig, right? Right, Before the conversation I'm going to have with him. He's such a sweetheart. He's so decent, so open, so funny. Really, really funny. Right. And then we got this really brilliant gig with Edge from U2, obviously, and Brian Cox. I love Brian Cox. Talking about music, creativity, and astrophysics. That's just—it's so up my street. That that's brilliant. I'm really looking forward to that one. You were little, yeah, and again, so what you're doing is when you're putting those gigs together, you put them together months in advance. Yeah, and then you know the last few days, you got to call everybody, make sure they're happy with what you're going to ask them or what's coming down the line. And with Bernie, it was like I've never heard him in such good form. I was on the phone to him the other night, and he's in flying form. I actually really think that his world has changed since becoming this sort of the head of the budget committee. Yeah, it's kind of it completely invigorated well, him. He has a bit of power now. He's a he? lot of power now. Yeah. I mean, Whereas he is, before he was just, like, with all due respect, he was just a talker. 
Well, no, he was the leader of a left-wing movement. And now that left-wing movement is front and centre and he's yeah. got the gig. Yeah, yeah. He's got the gig. But he couldn't do anything, but now he can. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then Brian Cox is so funny talking to him because he's got this fantastic sort of Mancunian, Oldham yeah. accent and his enthusiasm for everything yeah, is yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I was talking to Elif Shafak again today, you yeah. know, the Turkish writer who is so fantastic. She's so brilliant. And Isabel Allende, we've got the president coming, which is which is going to be fantastic because the president, you've no idea where he goes with the conversation. Right. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. We've got this basic idea we're going to talk about, but it could go off in yeah. tangents. And it's been... It's part of the fun though, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I can't wait. So, and the tickets are flying out. It's actually Ducky bookfestival.org if you want your tickets interestingly and it's really worth it actually because it's well, how many well we've 25 events over three days 50 euros the ticket i mean i think it's really good wow. and, and what we've two done, quid event an yeah event. an event but what exactly but what we've done is we've engaged with a tv production company fuel mm. to actually make something that looks and feels like broadcast immersive broadcast quality so we've gone away from just doing the zoom on zoom idea because yeah. i think people are fed up with that of course they are yeah so the idea is we've we filmed the whole thing in the tower the martello tower which is extraordinary yeah. it's an yeah. amazing place and we're trying to bring to it this is like a broadcast quality production mm. and the chats will be i think they're going to be actually the funniest thing is i think it's i really miss the live gig Right, yeah. and I miss the big tent, and I miss people coming out and having a laugh. But if you're going to try to do remote, if yeah. you're going to try, you've got to actually do something that's an experience, that's broadcast quality. You can't just, of course, you know, yeah. do it. So, but so do, do, do you know what? Like, there's such an amazing lineup. You, you know, you're talking about Brian Cox and and the Edge and Matt Damon and President and Bernie and all the rest. But you haven't mentioned the highlight. Which the, is the you and me. Yes. It's you and me, the David McWilliams yeah, right. podcast, John Davis, who has clearly got a face for television. You will see what he looks like. You'll see what That's he looks be like. Brilliant. And we are talking to two exceptionally brilliant women. Stephanie Kelton. Yes. Who is basically the brains behind the Bernie stroke Biden idea. Yeah, absolutely. And my mate Marla. Who's brilliant. Every time she's on, she's brilliant. She is. So she's going to be talking again about, and it's a really deep idea that, you know, we in the West are up here because it's a global North. We've got the vaccines. We've got MMT if we want to. We can print money. Mm, we can mm. fix everything. She's saying, whoa, wait a second. What about yeah. us down here yeah, 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 in yeah, the exactly. South? We don't have these options. So we have these brilliant, brilliant, brilliant talkers. Also, Kate Rayworth, you remember her? Yes. Doing Donut Economics. Donut Economics. She's on. Yeah. So it's all at, okay. It's all at dokeybookfestival.org. We kick off on Friday. I think it's going to be absolutely magic. And if you want to hear these conversations, just buy yourself a ticket. And uh, I hope you really enjoy it because I think it's going to be a fab weekend. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, one of the guys who will be there this weekend is a guy we're about to talk to now. Eric Lonergan. Again one of the finest Irish economists, not, didn't devote his time to, left Ireland many, many years ago, mm. but has an amazing take on the world. Obviously, the book we're going to talk with him about at Dorky is Angrynomics, his book with yeah. Mark Blythe. 
But today we're going to talk about something that you're interested in. We're all interested in. Yeah. Money. What is it? What makes it tick? What's our attraction to it? Is it a philosophy? Is it an economics idea? Is it a network idea? Is it something that people do weird things for and why? I mean, it's an amazing subject. And again, the reason we're talking about it is economics without money doesn't work. So let's go and talk to Eric. Now, over the last couple of months, money, the nature of money, what is it? Is there too much of it? Is there too little of it? Has been really something that has moved mainstream. What is quite amazing is money was never mainstream or the fact that it wasn't mainstream is kind of interesting, right? But if you're a Bitcoiner, you believe that money should be hard, it should be only a certain amount printed, and it should always be scarce. If you're an mmt on the other hand, you believe, hey, presto, let's print, let's fix, let's use money as a tool. So the idea that money can be a tool or it should be scarce kind of goes to the deep question of what the hell is money? What is it? And I'm glad on the podcast today, we plucked him out of London, uh, is Eric Lonergan, who has written a book a while back on the philosophy of money. Eric, how are you? I'm exceedingly well. Great to see How are you. Yeah, 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 very, yeah. very good. Can't complain and can't wait to talk about money. <laughs> okay. No, seriously, though. because Absolutely. Mean, you, you, you it's wrote, fascinating. The book is, you know, John said to me, frankly, he said, Michael, what the fuck is money? Right? He said, Well, I tell you what, what it is, is over the last while we've been talking, well, like I put myself in the school of David McWilliams economics, but I've come to that stage where when we're talking about Bitcoin in particular yeah. and about currency and value and all the rest, I came to realize that it's an incredibly abstract yeah. concept, yeah. money in itself, without Bitcoin. So for all the kind of confused members of this podcast club, what is money okay. and what makes a currency? Yeah, well, I'm going to start with the philosophy and then I'm going to make it really mundane and simple because the thing I love about it is if you well let's start with the abstract right yeah so i actually think to understand money so there's a couple of different things first what is it right and then why does it have value yeah right yeah. and those are two very separate ways to think about it and i think those are two things that economists have struggled with even, by the, even, by the, can i just stop you there i think most economists don't understand money yeah i really do yeah i really really do i know this might sound like a revelation if you're listening i actually have worked with economists for the last 30 years and I can count on my hand the number who understand money, yeah. who have an appreciation of the significance of money. Would you believe, I'm going to go off to Eric now in a second, the vast majority of economic models do not have money in them. Now think about that. So the economic models upon which the IMF, the World Bank, the Irish Central Bank, the Bank of England base their forecasts of the economy don't have a variable for money. What? So I don't get that that's, at all. So that's like, look. They so, assume it away. They assume, I mean, more I know it's mad. <laughs> right, okay, so Eric, let's go, yeah. let's go. But that's, and that's the beauty of it, right? So it's this thing that's so obvious to us all, because we all use it all the time, and yet it's simultaneously mysterious. And so there's a couple of things I want to throw out there, just as thoughts to, to leave there in your mind. The first one is, I think the closest analogy to, to money is actually language, right? If you can understand why one language wins, why one language is useful to us and another language less so, 
you'll understand money. So that's one thing. We can come back to that. The other thing I'm going to say as well is that money isn't a thing. It's a property of things, right? Now, what do I mean by that is you can literally use anything if you want to as money, right? So, mm. so it's a property and it shifts. This is why, to be honest, it's probably impossible to model. This is why, in a way, the economists want to get it out of their models because then they can model something. If they put it in, it's too tricky. It's too it's tricky. Too, it's, too messy. it's too slippery. Yeah. It starts moving around, yeah. right? Now, now, then, what is it? It's incredibly simple. And I, I was reading something the other day, other day about it, and somebody said, you know, I asked my six-year-old daughter, what, what's money? And she said, it's what you use to pay for things. End of story. Bingo. Mm. <laughs> That's all it is. It's what you use to pay for things. Now, it has other properties as well, but it's kind of defining characteristic is that it's what you use to pay for things. Right. But when you nail it down then and actually go through what are its properties, why do we use one money rather than another? How can it suddenly be a money and then disappear? That's where it starts to get complex. And the other, so the point about language is that, and this is one of the things I love about money, is, is money is, of course, associated with greed and avarice and selfishness and property rights. Yeah. And yet the truth is that the money only has value as a social construct. Mm. It only has value. Let's focus on this because yeah. this is the fascinating part. No, okay. no, no, no focus yeah. on this idea. So money gets gets its value from the fact that it's a social construct. And so the money that, if, if I have 20 euros in my pocket, that only has value because you'll accept it. Yeah. Right? Mm. So it depends on social acceptance. And that's where we start to understand why it's common to language. Because people have tried to construct better languages. Is it Esperanto supposed to be a yeah, brilliantly the kind of Hungarian yeah. guy who came up with Esperanto? Yeah, to that's make, right. and we were all going to speak it, and that's nobody right. took it up. That's the best technology, and this is the mistake a lot of people make, and this is where we'll get to the Bitcoin and, and, and MMT. But people often go, the best technology wins. No, no, no. In, in languages, the best technology doesn't win. I mean, English is a god-awful language mm -hmm. to learn. It's grammar's inconsistent all over the place. So is Irish, by the way. Yeah. And so is Irish, you know. Yeah. And, and Irish, yeah. actually, we should think about it because Irish is interesting in this context. So the thing is, is that the language that wins in a way, language is exactly the same. I mean, if I come up with Lonergan language, you know, Sorry, it's like, you know, might be great, but fuck all used to anyone else, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So, and that's the same with money. If you and I, we create our own private money, it's of no use to us at all. But so what is that? It's something, to, it's a bit like, it's, it's called a network externality in economics. It's the, it's the same as, as a mobile phone. There's no point in me having a mobile phone if nobody else has one. Sure, so yeah, it's yeah. one of those things that the value to the individual actually depends on the fact that other people find it useful as well. So that's a kind of introduction to the idea. It's something that we pay for. It's a property and it's a changeable property. When I say it's a property, cigarettes, I mean, most of us use cigarettes to try and die young. Obviously, if you're Don't in a prison. John's, <laughs> John's favorite line in the podcast is, hold on, I'm going out for a fag. Right? I swear to God, it happens. There we go. And yet, you know, in prisons, cigarettes become money. Now, money yeah. isn't a cigarette, but a cigarette can be money. And and this is the same if you then take it to, you know, from the prisons to the financial crisis. So a cigarette, once you leave the prison, it's no longer useful in the same way because it's no longer money. You have to actually sure. use dollars and cents. Now, to the same extent, if you think of the banking system, most of us think of our money as being a deposit in a bank because that's what we use to pay for things. But if the bank is bust, it stops being money. It disappears. Yep. Right. Because if you go there and, and there's no money there, there's no money there. Yeah. 
all of a sudden it's no good. Or the same with your credit card. You know, Visa's money. And yet, you know, if I've run through my credit limit and they say no, it's not money anymore. So money is a property of things. Mm. It's closest in terms of where it gets its value from. In my view, it's this idea of a network. It's a, it's an external. It, it's its value depends on its acceptance by others, and that's you know that's very different to most of the things we think about. And Eric, can I stop it there? It's what's what I find really incongruous about money is on the one hand, its value as a property that we use and accept depends on widespread acceptance, but yet scarcity. Yeah. Having lots of money mm-hmm. depends on you having more than everybody else. That's a good so point. this is the odd thing is that yeah. so there's an there's an incredible incentive to hoard money, mm-hmm. to take it out of circulation when its real magic depends on it being in circulation. Yeah. And these are things that people can't get their heads around. And yeah. When I hear the Bitcoiners, and, and I'm not having to go Bitcoiners, For sure. but they, they are the latest incarnation of what we call in economics hard money, that money has to be gold yeah. or has to be a commodity, it has to be fixed and it has to be changed with something hard. And then there's the soft squidgy money, yeah. which is the money you're talking about, which is yeah. the network money. Yeah. You know, I also look at you know how money took off. Like if you look at Facebook, right? Mm, Facebook yeah. is of no interest or no value to anybody if nobody uses it. But what is amazing with it, Facebook then converts every Facebook yeah. user, converts another user, or Twitter user converts another user. And I've always thought that the way in which money is accepted is very like those I social totally networks. I totally agree. And, 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 and do you know, I, I, I wrote about this a while back, was, funnily enough, was reading the Scottish philosopher David Hume. And Hume talks about this idea that wherever you get a group of individuals, a group of human beings living together, a society, there are three spontaneous institutions. So, so things that are just that, that we will create if we mm. have a group of humans. One is money, one is language, and the other is law. We need rules, we need language, and we need a medium of exchange. We need yep. something to pay yep. for things. And, and, and I think you're right. And it made me think that, you know, if you had a portfolio that was designed by David Hume, it would be, you know, it would be Facebook, it would be Visa and MasterCard. Yeah. I mean, these are... And, and it you know, be shares in a very large, dubious law firm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is always on the wrong side because I write those Christian novels. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly but, right. No, no, but let's keep it because the, the, yeah. the, what John asked, I think, is it's the kind of abstraction. Yeah. Yes. Because, like, Yovel Harari yeah. compares it to religion, that yeah. it only exists yeah. because we all believe it. Yeah. And it's the big myth. And yeah. the big myth is the euro yeah, yeah. actually can go and buy you. A packet of smokes in yeah. John's case, right? Yeah. No, but that's the big myth. Like that's, yeah, yeah, I know. and we can do that because you believe it's worth it, and I believe it's worth yeah. it. But when that myth breaks down, yeah, money actually disappears. Money can disappear. Yeah. Explain that to me. How it kind of disappears? It's it's that it's it's almost like you know you believe in the creed at yeah. mass, yeah, and then some one day you go at it when you're about fourteen. Most people say, yeah, I yeah. believe that shit. Yeah. Right? yeah, and well, then right. then it's gone. Well, this is the thing about it being a property of things. Okay. So, and again, to the point of you can imagine it if you think of, of the cigarette as well. And I think this was the same with the gold standard. Is yeah, I mean, it would be of no use to you whatever on a desert island. You know, you could have a chest full of euros. What use would it be? Yeah. So it it it, it is a social. It's a social phenomenon, and and there, the economists say it has no intrinsic value. I don't know if that's quite true, but it 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 has no physical value. Can, can know, I just ask you though, like, yeah. if you are on a desert island, when yeah. you talk about the spontaneity, yeah. something else would become yeah. the money. We would provide. It could be coconuts. We'd provide or it could be fish. Yeah. Or, yeah. 
Yeah. We'll provide John with a box of major. <laughs> <laughs> you know a real car. And a, and a box of matches, I hope. And as a well. box of matches. But listen, but John, the thing is that on, that only depends if there's more than one of you. You know, yes. you, you yeah, need yeah. you you need a you need a group. Mm. And and then it would you're absolutely right. And this is the thing. And this you know what? This debate goes to the heart of M T and crypto or Bitcoin. Because so, and I think to, to me, there's both fascinating, they're both right about a lot and wrong about other things. And the, the Bitcoin, I, I love us to come back to and talk because what I think is amazing about Bitcoin, just to sort of finish on the philosophy point, mm. Bitcoin to me is, is an original money and it's original in two ways. It has intelligence for the first time. So we've actually given money an intelligence, right? It what has an IQ. Well, what I mean by that is it determines its own propagation, right? So the so rate of the which, algorithm thing. Yeah, okay. it's the algorithm. So it's got built into it its own way of growing. Now, all other monies in the past were typically controlled by a central authority, like our central bank decided how much money to produce. And you, Dave, you'll remember in the 80s, we had all these rules about the money yeah. supply growth, and mm. the Germans were obsessed about the Bundesbank. Bitcoin... It's a. It's not a. It's not particularly clever. It's not high IQ, but it's got an IQ, and it's got its own rate of growth, which will eventually go to zero. So it's got an intelligence. That's and that's fascinating. This is the first money humans have created with their with its own intelligence. The second thing is it's got a memory. Now we've never had money with the memory, and what I mean by that is, you know, twenty. If I take out my twenty euros, you don't know where that's come from. Bitcoin, you know, every because transaction because of the blockchain. Yeah. Because of the blockchain, you know, every transaction every part of the node yeah. that's transacted. So that is fascinating to me because if you get futuristic about this, it won't be Bitcoin, but we have now, you know, the genie's out of a money with intelligence I've, and I've a never, money I've with memory. I've never thought of it that way. I've never thought of it that way, that you've got traceable money yeah, and you can trace the transactions. Like what if we said and I want The value of that is what? Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out. The value of that is from a, from a societal point of view, yeah. to mm. be able to actually trace transactions is incredibly both liberating on one hand, but kind of scary on yeah. the other. Because the one mm. great thing about money is, it, you know, the, the, the Romans had this great expression, Vespasian, you know, I like all this shit, yeah, yeah. right? Vespasian, a great expression in Latin called pecunia non olet. Oh, money does Money does not smell. Yeah, and it was it was about It was about a tax on piss, right? Now, this is the truth. This is the truth. The Romans used piss and it was very valuable for its potassium, for cleaning things. Yeah. So the Romans, they actually preferred Portuguese piss, which is apparently according to... <laughs> like high quality High piss. quality. It was very, very high in potassium. According to, they, used to, they used to import piss from... They used to try and get their piss from Portugal, which is bizarre, right? But what they had was they had a tax on piss. So they had these big, big latrines in Rome. Yeah. And you had a job called the piss collector. And he was the tax on piss, right? Because they'd pee into the thing, they'd collect the pee, and they'd sell it for cleaning. It was like jays, it was like toothpaste, everything. It brightens up everything. Potassium brightens up everything. And ammonia brightens up everything. Ammonia, yeah. Right? So the ammonia in the piss, they used to brush their teeth with. I know it sounds weird. So Vespasian was, Vespasian was the most impressive conqueror, right? Not Caesar, not Augustus, mm. was Vespasian was the man. He was down in Israel, he was off in Britain, he was all over the shop. And if you conquer, you've got to pay for things. So he was always a great tax collector too. Yeah. And he said, he stood up and said, okay, we're taxing piss, right? He said, I know it sounds grubby and I know it sounds unhygienic, but that's what we're doing. 
And then when the senators came back to him, but he was the emperor, so the senators were only Mickey Mouse at this stage. Yeah. And the senators came back and said, you can't be taxing piss, yeah. Vespasian. You're taking the piss, man. <laughs> <laughs> Vespasian says to them, pecunia non olet, meaning I don't care the origin of money. It mm. doesn't smell. It's money. It's yeah. real. Coming back to the point of if you accept it. But he was also making the point, I think, yeah. that it has this ephemeral character that it comes from nowhere, but once it's in use, yeah. it's unbelievable. So this is the idea you can't trace it. Yeah. So to go from Vespasian to the Bitcoiners, the Bitcoiners are now tracing it for the first time ever. And I think that's a, that is a different concept. It has mm. a memory. Yeah. You can trace the transaction, not the individual. Yeah. Let's let's talk about MMT. So MMT yeah. comes with the promise yeah. that the state using state money, yeah. fiat money, can fix things that heretofore, as they say in very elegant <laughs> legalistic terms, in, in the old days, you couldn't fix because somebody said, you know what, you can't use enough of that because you'll have a budget deficit and you can't do that. Yeah. So explain to me the magic and the downside of MMT. Yeah. Well, where M&T are absolutely correct is what they're observing on is that, as we've just described it in the same way as language, language is free. It costs me nothing to produce it, yeah. right? And uh, yeah, we, we can talk all day. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so too with money, right? So the state does not have a financial constraint. There's nobody out there who says, if you don't pay your taxes or the bond market is closed, you can't pay for things. Yes, you can, because the state can just, it's, it's electronic digits. It's just creating them every year. So to that extent, and that is very, very important, and people don't realize that. People don't realize that actually we just print it. We just create it on computers now rather than physically printing it. We physically print it as well. Now, the, the, then the, the, the tricky bit starts to become then, well, is there any limit to what the state can do? And I think MMT are right, right about this as well, or certainly Steph Stephanie Kelton is very clear about this. The only limit is inflation, right? So the only thing that's stopping us from printing more and more money is that ultimately, if you keep on doing it, prices will start to rise and prices will start to rise inexorably if you keep on printing it. So that is very important. And that's been incredibly important over the last 20 years because we, we've broadly been at more at risk of deflation prices falling than inflation, in which case, to all intents and purposes, governments don't have any budget constraint. And so all of the austerity and everything else, in a sense, has been a political fiction, either motivated by bad ideas or by disguised political intentions. Or both. Or both. And I suspect both. But you've also made the point about QE and austerity that QE, which was always a company. So in, in many cases, economists, certainly the mainstream economics, presented governments with a choice in 2008, 2009. They said, well, we will help you out by printing money, i.e. QE, or by making money available. But as a quid pro quo, you have to cut back on government spending. <laughs> and you've made the point that- How can that make sense? It's like the central bank is part of the government. How can I have a problem with my debt if I'm buying my own debt back? It's, it's like, imagine you were buying your own mortgage. If, if you bought your own mortgage, do you still have a mortgage? I'm paying interest to myself. Makes no sense. <laughs> if the government, so the reality is the developed world bought back the amount of debt that they issued during the financial crisis. Exactly. They bought that, that and more. So the reality is their debt didn't rise. If, now, so again, this you get bogged down by the accounting. But if you look at net debt, so you take your assets 
and subtract them from your liabilities, which is what you should do. There actually hasn't been an increase in the net debt of the developed world because of quantitative easing. Absolutely crazy. You cannot simultaneously be in a situation where I can print money and buy back my bonds and my buy back my debt. Which is what QE is, which QE is, is exactly. by the way, okay? That was QE. Was so the- QE is creating money to buy back your debt. Well, how can I have too much debt if I'm buying it back? Exactly. Makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, but this yeah, was, the, yeah, big, yeah, this yeah, was yeah. the big fallacy <laughs> at the center of macroeconomics from 2008, arguably to last week. Yeah. And then when I said, <laughs> I mean, last week. Like, You're right. You know, yeah. and, and I remember I used to sit there thinking, hold on, so QE, you're, issuing bits of paper to pay back your debt. But on the one hand, you're saying we have too much debt and we have to bring it down. But how yeah. can you be urging yourself to bring back your own debt if with one hand you're buying it and the other hand you're saying... But is it not shifting around between different people, though? But uh, but in, in an absolute sense, yeah. basically, poor people suffered. That's what the, op- yes. op- the, yeah, the upshot yeah. was, because if you are poor, you depend more on the state than if you're rich. So you spend it for health, for education, for transfers, for the mm. dole, for your houses, whatever, right? So what you could, that's why I think it was ideologically driven. Unless the economics fraternity was completely blind to the inconsistency at the middle. Yeah. Of the middle. But to come back to our, our friend yeah. money, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's always intrigued me about money as well, is it, and, and you as a half Italian, Eric, might, might get this. Uh, <laughs> no, no, seriously. Uh, when, 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 when I used to work in the markets and talk to economists, right? Germans feel that money is a public good like fresh air that must be and can only be protected, a bit like the environment, by legislation, right? So it cannot be interfered with. It is a public good. And the more you interfere with it, the worse it is, right? Italians, on the other hand, look at money as a tool to fix things, right? That basically, if you have a problem, you print a few more liras, that fixes your problem. You shift the economy onto some other level and away you go. And these were two profoundly different philosophical this views very of true, money. Very true. And now in Europe, what I've always said, the Italians have performed a coup d'etat at the ECB, right? <laughs> Under Draghi. Shh, 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 don't tell a sinner. <laughs> don't tell them. But, but it's true. The German yeah. view of money has actually been on the descendancy for the last... 10 years. Well, that's, I mean, that's a great way of framing things because I think you've described what I still think is a contradiction at the heart of Europe that they haven't resolved because it, it carries all of the baggage of the, the German mental scarring of the, 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 the hyperinflation and the Italian kind of pragmatism, uh, the willingness of the Italians to devalue whatever is necessary. You know, they're pragmatic. Yeah. Whereas the and, and 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 I think it's very hard when people go, why are the Germans, you know, why do they why are they why are they so obsessed with austerity, cutting budget, saving? People don't realize they pooled sovereignty. They gave away their precious Bundesbank. Yeah, they did. You know, if you think it was a constitutionally independent control of money, they 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 tr- they didn't want their money to be in the hands of politicians, you know, but they gave it to Europe. Now, that was an incredible sacrifice for, for the Germans. And I think that's one of the reasons they're so resistant to pooling sovereignty on the fiscal side, to the idea that the whole of Europe can borrow as a European entity. Because they're going, hang on a minute, we already gave away our money. Yeah, we're not enough. gonna. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're not we're gonna, not gonna give you lads. Yeah, we're exactly. not gonna give you lads the keys to the kingdom. That's it. You know, and, and I think that tension is still there. Let's talk about money in the UK. Yeah. So Britain is. Always, always kind of an outlier on these things. It still is its own central bank. So the Bank of England mm. can print whatever it wants. 
They can borrow, it seems, as much as they want. Yeah. The Bank of England can fix the rate at which they, not the markets, this idea the markets are powerful, the markets are no longer powerful, yeah. right? This is, the, this is the dirty little secret that people don't want to talk about. Yeah. That the central banks have yeah. elbowed out yeah. the markets. Yeah. How do you think that will play out? I, I'm using the UK, but let's, let's, yeah, let's, yeah. let's go to the States. Let's go yeah, to the yeah. States. How do you think it will play out? It's absolutely fascinating this because, again, I think one of the most important features of the global economy is you're entirely aware of this, is, is how low the cost of borrowing is to the government. Right? Yes. And I think the truth is, you and I can come up with some good explanations, but I think the truth is most economists actually can't explain that. They don't know why, which is why there's this permanent fear that all of a sudden interest rates are going to start rising again and everything will change. But the reality is, that, that our governments can borrow for 10, 20, 30 years at extraordinarily low interest rates, fixed interest rates. And this gives them huge potential. My own view is that the factors behind that are probably deeply, deeply structural. Which meaning? Is meaning that they're caused by the aging of the population, the concentration of wealth, so that there's a very huge propensity to save. I think life expectancy. So I think it's everything around savings behavior. So why is it in a sense that people have a sense of insecurity about how much money they need to accumulate? Well, I think that is about healthcare, about longevity, um, all of those deep insecurities. People, so I think that's one big factor. I think the other big factor is, and this is a bit of an economics point, is that we become very we became wholly reliant on central banks to deal with recessions really, as you say, until the pandemic. The pandemic is an important turning point. But for the last 30 years, it's oh, central banks, any sign of problems, you cut interest rates. When you cut interest rates, people borrow more. You increase leverage. Well, that meant every single time they had to cut interest rates, but they couldn't really raise them again. And I think you've had a pattern where rates are kind of come down, come down, come down, leverage grows and grows and grows, and then you can't raise the interest rates again. But isn't this the sort of day of reckoning that you hear from a lot of people, usually politically on the right, yeah. usually believers in hard currency, usually have a sort of a nostalgia for the gold standard yeah. when money was gold. Because what they're saying is that we've waltzed ourselves up a sort of an intellectual cul-de-sac, yeah. whereas the lower the rate of interest, the more borrowing, the more borrowing, the lower the rate of interest has to yeah. be, because yeah. if you raise the rate of interest, you get a debt implosion. Exactly, yeah. So, how does it end? How does it end? Yeah. Because well, this is to come back uh, yeah, to the point about money. Well, I'm, a, I'm more optimistic than that because I think there's something else at the same time that's been amazing that's been happening in the global economy. And, you, you know, you, you've been talking about it recently with the, all the inflation scares. Could we go back to the 1970s? The only people who are worried about the 1970s are people who know nothing about the 1970s, right? I mean, the world could not be more different to the 1970s when there were smoke-filled rooms you know, trade unions on behalf of the working population. These are called the beer and sandwiches uh, there we in, go. The, in the UK. Do you yeah. know what they call yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, They'd yeah. sit around and the trade unions have their beer and sandwiches and yeah. they come in to Harold Wilson yeah. or to Jim Callaghan. <laughs> we're having a wage increase. Yeah. Incomes, policies, prices. But prices and wages were controlled centrally. Yes. And in that world, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine if, 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 if let's say, you know, you're the government, you're the trade unions, I don't know, I'm the arbiter. We get into the room, we look at the oil price, it's just gone up 50%. Thanks very much. You're putting up your prices. You're getting a wage increase. And that's what happened. And that's why we had that. that. Today is completely different. 
We have ferociously competitive global markets. I mean, the idea that anybody goes to their employer at the moment and says, the oil price has gone up, give me a wage increase. <laughs> you know what they'll tell you what to do, right? In fact, if anything, when the oil price goes up, we, we, our margins come under pressure and, and there's downward pressure on wages. So we live in, it's a totally different world. It costs nothing now to set up a business. You know, the, the cost of setting up business has never been lower in human history than it is today. There is brutal competition left, right and center. Everything's been deregulated technology. So- there's this irony that we've printed gazillions, but we've created ferocious global competition, which means nobody has any pricing power. And I think that's what's really killed the inflation. Now, at some point, I think that what's actually happened is, ironically, this ended with negative interest rates. So it didn't end in a big bang where everybody defaulted or there was hyperinflation. It ended by us going, well, interest rates are now zero or minus 75 or minus three quarters of a percent in Europe. They can't go any further, right? So we've got to do something else. And the, and the something else in a way was MMT. You know, Janet Yellen doesn't call it MMT, but effectively they've said, we actually need the government to spend money. We need the government to step in yeah. here and this is, create this is the, the, the Powell, Jay Powell says, the Fed can lend, but it can't spend. So we can give you the money, but somebody's got to spend it. Mm. Now, I want to, before before you go, Eric, I want to ask you, you manage money on a daily basis, yeah. right? So you, you think about money as an abstract concept, as a philosophical concept, but also as a real yeah. concept. You've got yeah. to make money, your job. Yeah. Okay, how does the world of negative or low interest rates complicate your business? Well, I tell you, I think it's a bad idea, and I'll tell you why. Is And again, it's the problem with economists. Sometimes we need to be tested with basic common sense, right? So the theory, which is if you listen to Ben Bernanke or other people who advocated quantitative easing or negative interest rates, they go, well, if, we, if interest rates are negative, you know, no one's going to want to hold cash. So they'll go and do other things, like they'll buy the stock market or they'll, you know, they'll take risks or they'll start, you know, building factories. Human beings don't work like that. I mean, if you put a negative interest rate on my cash, I go, how do I find a substitute? Right? Because there's a reason they're holding cash. The people who are holding, hoarding lots of cash are actually afraid. They're risk averse. They're not going to run out and start buying the stock market. Because suddenly, their fundamental exactly, DNA they, is they, they exactly, don't want the stock market. That's exactly right. So what happens in, in, in Northern Europe when you give them negative tax, negative interest rates, they end up actually doing quite risky things to get a, a equivalence of cash. So you get all of these complicated financial structures where somebody tries to take a portfolio of bonds and chop it up left, right, and center and provide a guarantee here and a full rate and a structured price. In other words, the, the human beings with their ingenuity try to engineer alternative things that might be as safe as a deposit. So I actually think it's, it's the sensible thing for them to do is put interest rates at about 1%. And start doing something clever. If you if you want to create demand, you know I'm a big believer in helicopter drops. Put some euros in the post. You know every European citizen, if you want to create inflation or you want to hit your inflation target, send them 500 euros every quarter until you get to two percent, and then stop. Two percent inflation, yeah. yeah. Just say, and then stop. Go out and spend, and prices will yeah. rise naturally. There you go. Don't do the negative interest rates, and give 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 it equally to everyone. So if I'm German or a, I'm a Finn or wherever you are in Europe, Dutch, everybody gets 500 euros. No one can complain. Completely fair. You can call it a perpetual zero interest rate loan. That'll that'll satisfy so, the accountants. I want to then. Sorry, can yeah. I just jump in there? But then yeah. you know the interesting thing that I've been reading a lot about recently is the whole labour market crunch at the moment. That's just going to exacerbate that, isn't it? 
I'm a bit, I don't, you know, the thing I know we're talking is, well, theoretically. Well, let's talk, thing. here's another very important thing with inflation, and it's one thing that's useful in economics, is the idea of relative prices versus aggregate prices, right? So aggregate prices is inflation. Yeah. Relative prices is the market, right? And what relative prices means one thing is going up, the other is falling, right? So semiconductor prices, they fall. The oil price at the moment is going, is going up. That tells you, spend less on oil. And spend more on, right. on semiconductors, right? If the wages of if the wages of somebody working in a, in a restaurant are going up, we need more people to go and work in the restaurant. If the wages of an engineer are falling, we need fewer engineers, right? So the price of one thing going up and another falling is a market. That's actually what the markets are good at, right? That's not inflation. That's good, right? Because that tells us what to do. That's prices working. Single. And I think that's most of what's happening in the labour market. Most of it at the right. moment is that there are specific pockets where there are shortages. So price are great. If you're in that area, your wages should be going up and more people should go in there. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But if yeah. I look at Europe, you know, God, you know, you've still got youth unemployment in Italy, 20, 30%. I mean, there is no shortage of workers. You know, it would be fabulous. Yeah if we had a shortage of workers in mm. Europe, but we're a long, long way away from that. Can we just conclude on the idea of giving out money, right? Yeah. And this comes to the morality of money. That if you say, and I, I agree with you, and we've been saying in the podcast, just give people money. But lots and lots of people say, ah, here, hold on a second, right? You know what I mean? Say, ah, here, you know, hold yeah, on yeah, a yeah. second. Yeah. You can't be giving the stuff away. For nothing. For nothing, right? Yeah. So where does that come from, right? Our attachment to labor. Yeah. You need to work and put in the hours in order to get rewarded in this scarce and yeah. beautiful thing that you can buy beautiful things yeah. with called money. And if you start giving the stuff away, it upsets my sense oh, no, of normality. Right? It says my yeah. sense of right and wrong. Oh, I know. And, and even I'm going, they must be right. I mean, that must be right. But the, here's the thing, the way I, I would think of it in a number of different ways. Part of the reason we need to do it is we've become so productive. I mean, I mean, when people say, well, what does it mean, you know, deflation? What it, what it means is, is that we are able to produce more than we're spending our money on. So the reality is there are more people in Europe who should be employed. So we actually, we have the ability to produce more if people were spending more. Like, that's I the problem. You. So that's... That's, that's, and that's, that's deflation. Crux. That's your definition of deflation. That's my definition. We've actually got too good. Exactly. We've got too good. Right. We can employ more people. We can produce more. We can work more. And the irony is, if you actually gave people more money, people would work more because they'd be spending more. We'd be employing more. We'd be creating more. That's the first thing I'd say. On the moral point, usually the same people believe in inheritance, right? Inheritance is something for nothing. You know, you're absolutely like, right. I hadn't thought of that. Okay, so if and you it's always and you're right. It's okay. always it's always the it's just not right to be given money to these people. On the other hand, I'm going to bequeath to my lazy son who wasn't worth a fucking day in his life a million Something quid. Exactly. But that's and, yeah. but that comes down to family. This is and true. that's a philosophical yeah. and a deeper discussion about psychology. Yeah. Whereas we tolerate things within our family. Yeah. Because our bonds are so strong that we would never tolerate people outside the family doing. And that is, a, again... This is true. We started well, can we, I give you a last answer then? Go for it. Well, your last one would be the fact is who owns language, right? And it's the same way with money. Is the money has been created by the state. We, so we all deserve a share of it. You know, I, so I would hmm. say, but with the condition that we're not going to go crazy and create inflation. But if we've got a problem with in, the inflation is too low, Everybody should benefit. I, in a way, I think it's, how can you argue with that? We're not producing enough and it's ours collectively. We own it. We own it. So let's have some of it. Let's leave it there.
Nice. Eric Lonergan's <laughs> book, Money, is again, he has a fantastic habit, and his last book is the same, Angry Nomics, of writing mercifully short books. As I've always said, it's much harder to write a short book than a long book. If you want to get into the plumbing of money, how it actually works, who creates it, who doesn't, but also the deeper philosophical, social, emotional, and historical issues that, you know, coming to grips, as John was saying, with money Mm. presents to you, I can't recommend it highly enough. Eric Lonergan, money. And we'll talk to you soon, Eric. Thanks for dropping in. Thanks a million, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the pair of you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So... The crucial thing about money, therefore, I'm beginning to understand it little by little, is its spontaneity. As they said in Jurassic Park, actually. Did they say in Jurassic Park? No, they said life finds a way. And it seems that... money finds a way. According to Eric, money finds a way. Something will always become tradable. Something will always become a currency of some sort. Whether it's, as he mentioned, cigarettes Cigarettes in in a prison. Yeah. Or coconuts on a on an island. Or as or I've told you before, you know the M-Pesa in Kenya. Yeah, yeah, that's not where a mobile phone credit yeah. became money. I think, and I really believe this, that money is by far and away the most innovative technology the humans have ever invented. And the reason I feel this is that money is not of the natural world. Mm. It doesn't exist in nature. Yeah, it only exists where you have humans. So it is an invention of the human mind. And it is a technology, and I believe it's a technology, most importantly, to bring us together. So it's a social network technology. And what it does, what money actually does, and, and, and I think Eric believes this too, is it brings out the collaborative nature in humans. Because by bringing us together, we collaborate. And when we collaborate, yeah. we're at our most prolific. And I well, know- it's also how we collaborate. Yes, money, it is. Money enables the, the us language. To, yeah, yeah, so yeah. money is the universal language. And it's such a weird thing is if you put together a Wall Street trader mm. from New York City, living uptown in some swanky place, access to all sorts of technology, access to the delights of the most impressive city maybe in the world. You put him or her together with a tribeswoman from the Maasai 
in Kenya, mm. who has no access to technology, maybe even no access to water. The amazing thing is both of them understand the language of money. They understand scarcity, value, supply, demand. Do I have it? Do I not? Money is the universal language, whether we like it or not. Now, most of our... It's interesting. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you there. It's interesting because the other way, and I'm sure Edge and Brian Coxall will talk about this, music is the other universal language. You're absolutely right. Music and money. Music and money. And it's funny what Eric was saying that uh, Hume, the Scottish philosopher, Mm. said that when humans come together, we do three things. We have money, we have language, we have law. Yes. But you're right. We also have music. Yeah. We also have laughing. We also have humor. These are these are things. And humor is a human network technology that we figured out, right? That we laugh together, yeah. right? So I think that... That's uh, why you can't tickle yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have somebody I, else to tickle you. I fucking love you, the way your head works. <laughs> You can't tickle yourself. Go on. But it is true. Yeah. Will I tickle you? <laughs> oh, go on. <laughs> anyway, let's conclude. It's a very serious podcast about economics. I will walk, I'll go over there and I will spoon you before you know Jesus. it. Anyway. <laughs> so money is the most fantastic technology. We tend to have moralistic views about money, avarice and greed. And money is the root of all evil. Mm. But I'll leave you with this idea that money allows us to trade. And when we first started trading, we stopped killing each other. Right. right? There is is a French philosopher whose name escapes me, but I'll get it in two seconds, who said, in order to trade, we first had to throw down the spear. And this is the idea that money is actually a replacement for violence in many cases because once you sit down with people and you trade and you exchange money and value then the first hunter gatherers didn't have to kill each other yeah to get stuff they wanted so it's actually can be seen as not only an amazing social technology but a technology that has actually engendered collaboration not competition and a certain amount of peace not always war To all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without your support. It means a huge amount to us. Also, all your feedback, your suggestions, your comments, our comments to you, our replies to you, really is the essence of the whole thing. So, again, thank you very much. And for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David Michael Williams.